Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about finances, something that we have yet to cover in this podcast. And some of us idealists, some of us that are really thinking about follow your passion, follow your dreams. What does this mean for humanity? Don't necessarily always want to think about money and finances, but finances is actually one of the things that really prevents a lot of people from doing what they really want to do in life. I've seen a lot of different estimates about the number of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck and searching through all these estimates, it's consistently over half, which means that finances in a lot of situations are preventing you all from fulfilling your mission in life and actually going for it. To further discuss this topic, we bring on Paul Lacau from Momentus Group, who has some great ideas about how we all can manage our finances a little bit better and fill, free up that time as well as free up that slack in our cash flow so that we can go out and pursue what we want to pursue. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First of all, let's start out. Tell us a little bit about Momentus Group and what you do, because there's a lot of financial planning out there. I believe anyone can instantly find, if you hit the networking circuit, a ton of financial planners. So what does Momentus do that's so different from your standard financial planning? Well, Stephen, I've done this a long time. And I was fortunate when I got into the business in 2000. I spent 15 years in mortgage banking from 85 to 2000 and then leaped over into what I do today. And it's interesting in talking to people over that many years about their money, what they earn, what they spend it on, what they save, what their debts are, and so on and so forth the trends begin to appear. You see a lot of the same stuff. We'll talk about this in a minute, but the law of the masses and whatnot. But I noticed trends. And what I noticed was all those years, I could count on about one hand, the people that I thought really had it together financially. Like you just said, the paycheck to paycheck, the numbers of people is high. And I started to realize that most people were doing the same things with their money as everybody else, yet they were expecting a different result. And we all know what that's the definition of. And it became real evident to me. So I really started to study and try to understand what those trends were and how to combat them, if you will. That's kind of an aggressive word, but how to maybe look what all the, everybody's doing and, and go the other way and get on a journey that the people were emulating were on versus the ones that everybody was doing. So if you do the same thing as everyone else is doing, you should expect the same results that everyone else is getting. And when you think of what everyone else is doing, I don't know which statistic is right, but we know it's more than half living paycheck to paycheck. And even more than that are the number of people that feel like they can't pursue their passions because they have to keep that paycheck going. And they can't even say, take a job that may be more meaningful to them, but has a slightly lower salary because of how they're handling money. What are the patterns, the trends that you're seeing that cause people to end up in that situation? Let me preface that by saying that the people that I work with, I teach them principles. And I like that word because principle is kind of a, a foundational. How do you live your life? What are the principles you live your life by? And I have that conversation with my clients. Then I ask them, what financial principles are they living by? Most people kind of, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. really don't have any. And so I try to teach people principles that will help them become and remain. And for me, it's financial freedom. And you said it earlier is if you have your finances in such a way, it's all about buying back your time. Time is the real commodity. Time is the thing people are after, but time costs money. It takes money. So we have to pay attention to that. And 
you ask the question, how have so many people gotten to where they are? The banking industry and Wall Street and the government and the IRS tell us an awful lot of stuff. And they tell it to us often through advertising and through people like me and magazines and books and pundits and the talking heads and all the sources where information comes from. And they beat the drum to do a certain few things with your money, yet it's not getting people the results they're looking for. So my message is, what if we looked at what they're all doing and we didn't do that? We did something different. We got on a different path. And Stephen, those things that people do are just a few. There's just a few things that the masses tend to do. So one of the things I try to instill in people is number one, we got to save. You just simply got to put money somewhere and get good at that between inflation, taxation, fees, the desire to consume, technological change, planned obsolescence. That takes away a lot of money all the time. And we got to build defensive strategies for those things. Two, people don't protect properly. I mean, I'm not in the property casualty business for auto homeowners and umbrella, but I do see what people have. And so often they're putting themselves at great risk to lawsuits, to whatever. The numbers are low. The premiums are low. They just don't. Think about medieval times. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. I don't know why it just came to mind. The wealthy landowners built castles back then. And the minute the castle was done, they put a moat and a drawbridge around it to protect the stuff on the inside. And they went to great lengths to do that. And we've lost that in today's society. We either don't insure or we do it very inexpensively or on the cheap and we expose ourselves to problems. I like to make sure people have six months or a year, and listen to this, income storage, not expenses, but income. If you're making 50,000 a year, I'd like to see you have $25,000 or more somewhere. So that if a job loss occurred or a disabling event, or God forbid, a death of a breadwinner, the family would survive for a while until they get back on their feet. So some foundational stuff like that, I just try to help. Now, I've got plenty of clients who make good money and are doing well, and we, we take those a step further and build on those. But for the ones in the middle, we got to do some basic foundational things to just get in the right frame of mind to move forward. And so I've heard quite a bit, this whole idea of living below your means, but and I think that's a little bit of a scary proposition. I don't love that phrase and how it's put, but the idea is that if your job brings you in $5,000 a month, you should not be spending $5,000 a month, regardless of what your scenario is. How uncommon is that knowledge? Because it seems to me like pretty self-evident, but it also seems just from the statistics that there are a lot of people who pretty much spend all the money they make between their mortgage, their food, but then whatever else they decide to purchase. Sure. I have three daughters, okay? <laughs> I know you feel sorry for me, but I've got three daughters. <laughs> no, that sounds fantastic. Well, it is. It's, it's amazing. They're great kids and I uh, love them to death. They all live near me, which is really fun. But they all would buy purses and they'd fill the purse. And then they'd say, I need a bigger purse. And they'd buy a bigger purse and they'd fill the purse. And then they'd buy a bigger purse and they'd fill the purse. And it's a law where people just tend to do that. They just gravitate toward that. Again, like you, not that I'm asking people. I never ask people to change their lifestyle for me to enter their world and help them with their money. If they want to do that voluntarily, great. We'll work with those dollars. But we talk through those things about expanding those sort of things. I've got a good friend who's driving an unair conditioned car in Galdarn this summer. It was hot and he just sucked it up and did it because he's got a nice home for his family and they take a vacation every once in a while and they save a lot of money. And that's his choice. And that's great. 
But you're right. You got to budget, if you will, and figure out what works so you can set aside. Gosh, I want you to set aside 12, 15, 20% of your income. And if you do, as much as that might hurt a little, you will be grateful for it to have cash resources to not have to go into debt or finance a water heater or brakes on your tire go on a credit card or a vacation go on a credit card, but that you could maybe pay for some of those things and not create the debt that goes with it. For sure. And these purses actually seem like a microcosm for what a lot of people do in general life. It doesn't have to be a purse, so get a bigger one, fill it. People do that with homes. I need a bigger home and then they fill it with stuff and then they need a bigger home and then they fill it with stuff. And one of the messages, and I'm not sure this is what you say to your clients, but is that this is a choice, even though it doesn't necessarily always feel like a choice because as you say, with the law of the masses, like everyone's doing it, but it's still a choice just because it seems like the thing to do. It seems like what 80, 85% of Americans are doing today doesn't mean it's not a choice. Doesn't mean you're not choosing that priority with your resources. True. And I'll tell you what, I was very lucky. I was in the mortgage business. And this is a little bit of my story. I was in the mortgage business from 1985 to late 99. And how I got into the financial services field was as a loan officer in the mortgage business, I started calling on financial service firms to acquire clients rather than knocking on realtors' doors all the time. I started kind of going the other direction. And after a couple of years of doing that, the owner of this particular firm walked out one day and said, gosh, Paul, you're here so often. We think you work here. Have you ever thought about doing what we do? <laughs> really? I mean, it's a true statement. And I said, I really have. I said, I like your business. I work with one of your guys. He's my financial advisor. Love the stories, love the messages and whatnot. And I ended up crossing over and going to work for that company, which was really great. But the guy that was mentoring me at the time and was my financial advisor said something, what I thought was very daring, but he said it confidently to me. And it, here's what he said. We had a home and my girls and a couple of cars were living life as we all do. And I was getting ready to join a, a golf country club. I'm a golfer. I had been my whole life. I thought it'd be nice to have a place to call home and go play and have a locker room and a pool and a place to eat meals and bring my family. And I was telling him about this and I said, I really want to join a country club. And there's an initiation fee. And I think back then it was like five or $10,000. It's a lot more these days. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, Paul, do you more want to join the country club or be financially independent? And I just went, are you taking away my country club? He said, I'm not doing anything of the sorts. It's a decision like you were saying, Stephen, you want to put that money toward your future and then join the club maybe next year or do you want to do it this year? And guess what I did? I didn't join the club. I waited till next year because I, I saw where he was and what he was doing and what I needed to do for my family and made that decision. That doesn't make me any different than anybody else. I was just posed that question and made that call. And I'm glad that I did. And so you were thinking about financial freedom way back before that, way back when you were still in the mortgage brokerage game. What made you think along those lines? Because I don't think a lot of people, I oftentimes think about it as a difference between the two games, Monopoly and Payday. And Payday teaches you how to live paycheck to paycheck and get through to the end <laughs> of the month. And Monopoly teaches you the importance of buying property and developing assets. What got you in that whole 15-year period? I'm not sure when you started thinking about everything, but what got you thinking along those lines that financial freedom was something that you wanted and then something that you wanted to share with others? Great question. I'm not sure I've ever thought of it that way. But when I first got into business, I graduated from college in 83, so a long, long time ago, and kind of got my feet on the ground a couple of years later after some kind of moves and things like that. And I got into one of these little networking type groups. He got asked to join. I was a mortgage banker. They didn't have one of those. They had a realtor and they had 
my financial advisor and whatever. And I was listening to the financial advisor in the group and what he said. And Stephen, I got to be honest, it was not the normal conversation. His name was Jim. I said, Jim, where are you getting this? He goes, well, I've taken a track that's off the beaten path, more non-traditional. He says, I read a lot. They went to these symposiums every six months for two or three days and got a bunch of information. And I started to kind of tune into his messages and going, wow, that's different. So later when I joined that firm, I trained in the same manner that he had been teaching me as a client to do that. And it was all about the things I've said today, live beneath your means, save money, protect, use some core foundational economic principles that are around for a hundred years that have been cast off and ignored by Wall Street and all these other folks that are out there. And I was grateful for it. So one of the things that's really interesting about that story is that a lot of people have a complex relationship with what's different. What's different often wows people the same way you were wowed in that networking group by hearing something different. And I even think about my own experiences and how sometimes I'll go to certain groups or I'll go to presentations. I'll hear people saying the same thing, the same thing over and over again. And I'm just like, whatever. But then when you hear that new, that different thing, it catches your eyes. But also a lot of people are often afraid to be different, afraid to stand out for various group acceptance reasons. What do you think is the formula in your view in being comfortable with being different and showing it to people in a way that is going to bring in the right people the same way your financial advisor back in the 80s did in the way you do today? Well, I run the risk of working with a lot less people, but everybody does it this way and I'm going to do what everybody does. And I just have to say, gosh, good luck with that. I hope that works. (laughs) Call me if you want a different view. But Stephen, I read a great deal. I attend a ton of functions. I hang around other people, like-minded people to me. A month or two ago, I was in, I don't know where, Utah or Nashville or somewhere. I can't even remember. (laughs) Those are very different places. Yeah. Well, I go where there's people that like-minded and learn and listen to talks and build strategies. And he said, third party trumps first party. And I thought, wait a minute. And what he meant by that was a book or an article or an expert trumps me as the first party trying to tell somebody, this is what you should do. So I'll pull a lot of information. I've got a great deal of information on my computer. And I'm looking out here, I've got a stack of books that I've read. Robert Kiyosaki and Len Rainier and Garrett Gunderson and all these authors that write these books that are just amazing. And the messages are contrarian. It's like, I know what everybody's doing, but if you do what they're doing, you're likely to get what they're getting and they're not getting very much. So you can either choose to do that or you can choose to listen to me and let me back it up and prove it and go this way and set yourself free from the masses and get what you want for you and your family. And I want to dive a little deeper into this statement you made, third party trumps first party. I'm thinking about a kind of person that's living to paycheck to paycheck or in some way afraid to leave their job, but still looking for something more. And in their day-to-day lives, say they go to work and say it's eight to five because that's what Henry Ford compromised with his employees back in 1905 and we never updated that, dictates what does that mean to their lives? What does that mean to someone in that position third party trumps first party? What should they be doing to incorporate that into just this exploratory phase of what do I want to do? What brings me passion? What should I do to get out of where I am now and get to a better place that's financially free and full of the activities that they really want to do? Understood. And Stephen, for some people, the idea of financial freedom is just not on their radar screen. I get that. 
But I always tell people it's a journey. You may not ever get to financial freedom and have millions of dollars sitting in a vault somewhere, but it is a journey and you either choose to get on it or you choose not to get on it. So when I acquire a a new referred client, which I'm grateful for, it's how I kind of build my practice and we meet and have an introductory talk, I unfold some of these ideas and concepts to people. And I almost always get, gosh, this is different. It's not what I've heard before. And I always say, okay, is that going to be a problem? And most are like, no, I'd like to know what you know. And it doesn't sound the same. So let's explore it. And after that meeting, I will put together an email with recapping the conversation. And I attach a couple of articles. I might send them or give them a book. And I'm going to send them a couple of links to some documentaries that are on YouTube. And I'm here to tell you, if you watch these two documentaries and don't call me back and say, what do I got to do? Then you weren't listening because they're back from 2010 and 2013, but we've been around for thousands of years. Nothing much has changed. And you listen to those and watch them. They're mind-blowing. And it should cause you to ask a lot of questions. And then I can start to backfill with you the reasons why. And you start to get a picture and an understanding of where we're going and how it might benefit you. And interestingly enough, we've talked in previous episodes on this podcast about finding your niche. And one of the things it sounds like is that your niche is people who simply don't want average and are willing to think in a different way to get that not average. Does that sound correct? It does. Yeah. And that's much average. I'm looking for responsible people with their money who care about that thing, that it's working right, that aren't just cavalier and it's just all going to be okay. It might not be. And we get to make decisions on whether it is or isn't. I just pose the question to people, is the status quo okay? Or would you like something different? And seven out of 10, eight out of 10 are like, I'd like something different. What have you got in mind? And we start the conversations and move forward. One of the things that I often encounter, and I'm sure you encounter, we all encounter from time to time, is people with a certain unhealthy attitude toward money, because there's an undercurrent in certain sectors of our culture that believes that the pursuit of wealth and not as much financial independence, but the pursuit of wealth is somewhat inherently morally bad or morally deficient compared to the pursuit of all kinds of other things. What do you have to say to anyone who's kind of thinking along those lines? Again, money's neutral. If you do bad things with money, money's bad. If you do good things with money, money's good. I'm going to do the best I can to kind of paraphrase a story, but there's a book written by Gary Keller, and it's The Millionaire Mindset or something along those lines, Millionaire Real Estate Producer, whatever. A couple of pages in there where he hires this real sharp, young, smart person. He said, I'll train you and I'll work with you. I'm the owner of the company. I'll spend the time and the effort and I'll help you. And he does. And this realtor gets great education, great knowledge, great experience. And he's got all the potential in the world. Yet he works a couple of days a week, sells eight or 10 houses a year. And when Gary Keller comes back to him, he says, hey, why aren't you applying yourself? He goes, Gary, I've got low bills. I make plenty of money. It's all I need. And Gary Keller says, what if you're at work one day and you're selling your eighth house in November and you're maybe going to do nine this year? And the phone rings and it's your mom. And she says, honey, dad's had a medical emergency. He's in the hospital. We need you here immediately. Can you get here and bring all the resources you can? This is going to probably be a big deal. And we got to take care of dad. And you think to yourself, man, I could have done so much better than I was. And now mom calls and they really need my help. And I haven't really applied my skills to do the best I could to help my family. I've been just on the take and it's all been fine. And is that okay with me? And that's kind of how that conversation goes. 
And I'm not judging anybody and I'll meet you where you're at. But if you express to me that you want something other than what you've got, then let's get busy and have some conversations and let me help you and so on and so forth. And so I don't ever try to push people out of their comfort zone, but sometimes give them that book and let them read that passage and they come back and go, I never thought like that before. That makes perfect sense. I'm a talented person. I've got an education. I've got skills. Should I maximize those? Yes or no? And if you say yes, I'll run with you. And if you say no, gosh, I'll shake your hand. We'll part friends and pass again some other time. That's amazing. And money is neutral. That's kind of a different narrative to people that will say something along the lines of money is the root of all evil. It seems like it more depends on what you want to do with the money. It does. I do a lot of public speaking and I enjoy it. In fact, I've got a seminar this afternoon at one o'clock and every so often that'll come up in my class, Stephen, and I'll grab a highlighter and I'll say, is this highlighter bad? I said, no, it's neutral. Now, if I throw it at you, it's probably bad. But if I write on the board and give you a concept that helps you in life, it's probably good. But by itself, it has no value. It's just neutral. And dollars are the same way. Dollars, if you buy drugs with them and sell it to grade school kids and one of them dies, bad. If you give it to a charity and someone gets to have a a house or gets to have a life that they wouldn't have otherwise had, it's great. And again, that's our call. And also, you alluded to in discussion about you get that phone call from your mom, like just what we all need to be doing on a regular basis. Because one of the things I think a lot of people think about is only what's now. My mortgage is $1,500 a month. My food, I spend this much. I want to go out to eat once a week. I want to do this. And that adds up to $2,500 a month and maybe $500 in taxes, right? But there are certain things that I believe people need to be doing on a regular basis, regardless of the scenario, just because these situations come about. And in this situation, I feel like the typical way, at least nowadays, is to start a GoFundMe or find a way to try to get donations. And curious about this list because I feel like you might have some things to add to it, but I feel like on a regular day-to-day basis, you should always be one, storing away some money, storing away some excess funds, two, doing something to improve your health, your physical, mental health, all those things, and three, establishing good relationships with people in your community or your family or neighborhood, town, whatever. Is there anything you would add to this list of things that people should always be doing on a day-to-day basis just because you never know when you're going to have a rainy day? Excellent. The first thing that came to my mind is you said physical health. I think of mental health. Read a book, volunteer somewhere that can be helpful to your community, educate yourself. I mentioned Robert Kiyosaki often, never met, met the man, I've read all of his books, and he just talks about experience and education being a great teacher going forward. You might know he wrote the famous and number one best-selling business book in the world, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he went to his rich dad often with questions. And the rich dad's answers weren't always what he was expecting. So how do I get here? He goes, I don't know. Go learn how to do that. Because that's not my expertise. My expertise is in the factory that I'm running and the real estate that I've purchased. But if you want to learn how to be a real estate investor, Go learn, read the book, go to seminars, do what you got to do to to learn that, and then go try it. And he talks a lot in his books that we're too afraid to fail in this country, and failure might be our best or one of our best teachers, but yet we're taught not to. And oh gosh, put that bubble around you and, and be really careful versus poke through and stick your hand out and maybe get it slapped once in a while, but go, wow, I guess I don't want to do that again, but I now know something. And so I think that's a really important piece of the equation. And interesting enough, I also read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I remember, I don't know if it was in the book or if it's in his podcast or his YouTube channel, 
where he says that there are certain things we need to have that good cash flow and we need to not spend money on frivolous things, but that learning experiences, education, and our intellectual curiosity did make the list of among things that he said are worth the money you spend on it most commonly. And if those things are worth the money, we'd say education, experiences, giving back to the community. He also mentions charity and being a giving person. What do you believe? And I know this is a loaded question, loaded in a half, but what do you believe are the things that people need to be spending less money on? When I give my seminars and my public speaking talks and whatnot, I've actually got a slide in one of my things that that talks about the three kinds of money. There's your lifestyle money, which is what you have. It's the house you live in, the cars you drive, the vacations you take, the meals you eat out, how you live your life. And that I'm not here to change that. There's accumulated money. And sadly, in our country, the rate of savings, and I don't mean the interest rate, but the amount of money we set aside is very low. It's not over 2%. So if you're making $100,000, you're saving $2,000 or less dollars a year by and large. And long-term to retire at some given age in the future isn't a workable solution. And then there's what's called transferred money. And that's the money that we are unknowingly and unnecessarily losing every day to all kinds of things, fees and taxes and lost opportunity costs and what have you. There's lots of them. And one of the things I kind of chuckle about is I'm not a coffee drinker and I never really have been, but I go to Starbucks and do meetings. And for a while, I was going to a particular Starbucks in Littleton quite frequently and meeting people there. And Stephen, I'm here to tell you, the same 15 people were lined up out the door every single time I was there. <laughs> and it's no longer called Starbucks. I call it six bucks because it's $6 to get out of there with a cup of coffee. And again, I'm not pointing any fingers, but seven days a week times six bucks is $42 times 4.33 weeks in a year is $175 times 12 months. It's a couple thousand dollars. Now that's not that much money, but it's a couple thousand dollars. Could you do without that? I never asked my clients that, but oftentimes they'll go, wow, I never thought about it. Every time I stop in there, I'm leaving a couple of grand a year behind that over the long haul at some nominal rate of return could be 10 or $12,000 times my wife and I, there's some money there. So my job is not to point fingers whatsoever. It's to help people discover what they're doing and let them make adult decisions about what they want to then do going forward. And I'll help them with that. And a big piece of that, I feel like, is awareness. And the group that we met through is called Conscious Business Connections, which on episode 20, you can hear all about with their leader, Kristen McGinnis. I think a lot of people are looking for solutions in life. Give me the formula, give me the solution. But a good portion of it I feel like it's awareness and then you figure it out. I'm aware of where this is all going and then I'm going to look through it and decide for myself what that means for what I do going forward. I agree. It's awareness and I'll throw in the word process. We are bombarded by just do it. Do it now. Why not? Get your hands on some money and the next thing you know, your friend shows up in a new car and maybe a year or two later, it's been sold because they couldn't afford the payments and they had to do something different. And so awareness. And if I can help people get onto a plan where we're systematically and automatically setting aside some money and then putting it in the right places to build this financial freedom kind of thing, that's a victory. And do people like doing that? No, savings isn't fun. It's not easy. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. The decision, gosh, I'm going to bring home my paycheck and you mentioned $5,000 and I'm going to put 500 or 750, 10 to 15% and pretend I don't have it. And people don't like that. But if they'll do that, they'll build the kind of life and it'll bring down the stress. And if the stress comes down, 
the happiness factor goes up. If the happiness factor goes up, they save you more money and it kind of feeds on itself over time and it begins to work. And that's the simplest of things is to just set aside money via savings. It's some of the strategic stuff that we do later that helps really grow everything where you want it, but you got to get the foundation started. And with that foundation, what do you say to the person that just doesn't want to think about money? I don't want to think about my budget. That's not where I want my mental energy to be. Well, okay. I think about them one of two ways. I either say thank you and goodbye, or (laughs) I go, then let's automate it. Let's set it up where you don't have to think about it. And as much as I hate auto withdrawals, sometimes we have to impose that, bad word maybe, but help somebody understand that to do it. And I normally got a husband and a wife. Most often I work with lots of individuals, lots of business owners, but if he is, is that way, she'll do it and vice versa. Or she'll say, Paul, you work with me on that. We'll just let Joe here go to work. And then everything's fine and it'll work for them that way. So we just got to find common ground. And then I also want to make sure we kind of cover to the more advanced because it seems like the basics is, of course, you're saving money for a rainy day and you're being aware of your purchases, making sure you're not that what you buy is something you've consciously chosen that's worth that money. But when people start setting aside money, of course, right now, a lot of people are worried about inflation and even without this extra weird scenario of inflation right now, there's kind of more significant things people can start doing with their money once you have five, 10 grand set aside than just having it in a savings account that right now is not earning anything. It's definitely not keeping up with inflation. Right. You bring up a good point. And for some reason, when I was quite young, like seven or eight years old, my father seemed to think he ought to drum into me this idea of lost opportunity costs. And the reason this came up was I picked up the game of golf at seven and managed to become reasonably prolific in a year or two and was playing. And back then, nine holes was $3 and 18 holes was $5. It's just ridiculous. But I didn't have the three or the $5. So I went to a, a course and picked the range for, gosh, 25 or 50 cents an hour, hand picked it with one of those popper things with the bag on it and poured it in bucks and kept doing it. They didn't have the nice machines that do it today and in a few minutes, but I made enough money to pay for golf once in a while. And one day I said to my dad, we were standing in the hallway of our house. It must've been Saturday or Sunday. He was home. And I said, you know, I don't want to work today. I want to go play golf. And he says, son, understand what you just said to me. I'm like, what? He goes, you're going to forego earning money and go spend money and think about the doubling effect of the loss that that's creating in your life. And I looked at my kid when I was like eight or nine and said, huh? Dad, I'm eight years old. I want to go play golf. He goes, I understand, son. But remember, rather than making money and and having that, you'll spend it. And there's a cost to those two things. So pay attention to that. Well, holy folks. I'm like, okay. And I'm not sure what if I went and played golf or I didn't. I'm not sure what I did that day. But so a little higher level stuff with people is lost opportunity cost. Every decision you make with a dollar is at the expense of all of the other choices that existed. And did you maximize that choice? Did you buy the cup of coffee or did you put it into a marketing piece that got you a new client that created some future income and all those kinds of things? So I pose those questions to people. The other thing I'll mention since you brought this up is think about, with no disrespect to the banking industry, but think about how banks work. For a bank to exist, Stephen, number one, they need our money. How do they get it from us? They entice us with a rate of return, football tickets, a blanket, whatever. We're doing better than that. <laughs> money to us, right? Number two, they want your money on an ongoing and frequent basis. In fact, every time you get paid, they'd like a little slice of your paycheck. And you can check a box and make a draft 
into some company savings plan and they've accomplished their goal. Number three is they want to hang on to your money for as long as they can. If getting it, getting it often is good, they want to keep it for as long as they can. And number four, they want to give you back as little as they possibly can through all kinds of penalties and fear mongering and whatnot. So those are the rules they work by. And if you understand those rules, those four simple rules, you'll know how to operate financially. The bank is employing something called the velocity of money multiplier effect. And we as consumers don't understand that or don't employ it. And it kills us. We take a dollar and put it in an account when we're 30 years old, knowing full well we can't get to that dollar for 30 years. Meanwhile, that institution is investing your dollars, buying buildings, taking trips, investing in research and development, hiring new employees, doing whatever, and we're letting it sit there for 30 years. We defy how money gets built by those institutions and don't understand it sometimes. And so I bring those messages to people to get their dollars ignited and doing more for them than just one thing. And so getting dollars ignited, it sounds like, first of all, investments in assets, but second of all, investments in yourself, in things like your health, your ability to have a a better life. Would you say that those are the things that we should be doing with our dollars as much as possible? Well, we all need to go out and have a good time sometimes. And I know I've sometimes overindulged a little bit on having a good time to be 100% honest, but is that the proper category of what people should be thinking? Okay, now that I have five, 10,000, 20,000 saved, I should be having it doing more than just this account where it's sitting somewhere. Absolutely. In fact, I'll talk Robert Kiyosaki one more time. And that is, it's all about flow. It's not about how big the pile is that you arrive with. It's what the pile can do for you, what it can produce. He likes real estate. He's got a lot of it, invest in real estate. And that creates cash flow. Cash flow can be reinvested into more real estate or gold and silver or intellectual capital. He's got his board game, Cash Flow 101, and Cash Flow for Kids in all of his books, his intellectual capital. You could buy a franchise. The point is, commonly people work and earn, lock away, and wait to see what happens. Kiyosaki says, work and earn, invest create more cash flow. And if that cash flow, if you've ever played the board game and you get out on the fast track, you get on the fast track because your passive income exceeds your monthly expenses. And now you are free to do with your time what you want to do. And so to put money into an account and just leave it there for 25 or 30 or 35 years under a bunch of rules and penalties and future taxes versus put it into somewhere that creates a, a new sum of money that gets invested, that creates another new sum of money and sit back and build engines that support your lifestyle, now you're getting to where you want to be. So one day you can walk away and let that continue. And just so that all the listeners out there know, what constitutes passive income? Well, passive income is you make an investment of some kind that then spits off, whether it's dividends, interest, rental income, whatever, that's passive. It's income earned for no effort put in. So a great example, a lot of people have stock accounts. I have my Merrill Edge account there. And I'll look at the dividends and I actually have a spreadsheet where I calculate the sum of my dividends just so I know what my annual passive income is from that particular source. So passive income is just, okay, you're getting the dividend or you're getting the rent on the real estate property or anything else like that. That's correct. And some people call it wake up money. The game, if you will, is to... Now, again, like you said, not everybody's going to participate. My dad worked at IBM for 31 years and brought home a paycheck, and that was our livelihood. And he did nicely. He didn't really purchase any assets that did that. He got some IBM stock through the purchase plan, 
but not a great deal. And he's very successful, but he just traded hours for dollars. And Kiyosaki and others are saying, you might have to trade hours for dollars for a few years to get, like you said, get your pool started, but then go make an investment. And you got to be smart about it. He talks about the number of failures he had in real estate, buying a property and having it go sour, losing the property and the money he'd put in and all that until he got more experience, more education, more available resources to defend against those things. And then he got off and running. Like you said, he talks a lot in his podcast and in his books about learning about real estate by playing the game Monopoly. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) He played the game almost daily with his rich dad and his rich dad's son and Robert. And they played the game and got the greenhouses and the red houses and the hotels and the whatever. And he said, that's how I learned to buy real estate. And so it sounds like passive income is the path to financial freedom because once you said on that fast track where your passive income exceeds your monthly expenses, all of a sudden you don't really have to work. And once you don't have to work, you're not really beholden to anyone and you can choose to spend your time on whatever you want to spend your time on. So whatever that I would say, going back to the beginning of the discussion, the dream you had that you said, okay, I don't want to think about money. I just want to think about what service I want to provide for society, what I want to do. If you get onto that fast track, if you get enough passive income where you don't have to spend all of your energy or a good chunk of your energy at a regular job, that becomes enabled. And that seems like a, from the standpoint of people wanting to not be greedy or something, a really great motivation for wanting to achieve that level of financial freedom. And it doesn't even have to be a life of luxury. You could say, I want to live on 3000 a month only, but once I get passive income of 3500 I can have my one-bedroom flat and then use my time to build community or help people with mental health or start a suicide hotline or whatever it is, whatever your noble pursuit you want to do. And given that, I want to give my listeners a chance to get a hold of you if they were interested in working with you. What's your company website and what's the best way that someone could contact you and talk to you about how to get on that track to financial freedom? Cell phone, a text, or an email is by far the best. My email is just my name, paullukow at gmail.com. So it's just 10 letters with no spacing or dots or dashes, just paullukow at gmail.com. Or my cell phone number to call or text me is 720-291-5090. And I've got them in front of my computer a lot. I've got my cell phone here. I wrap up my day every day at the end of the day and never leave loose ends. So I'll get back to you. And that's uh, Lukow spelled L-U-C-H-A-U, right? Correct. Uh, Excellent. That's a good way to get a hold of them. And regardless, I just encourage all my listeners out there to think about these financial implications, especially in the context of how it's going to enable the lives that we really want. And hopefully we can all get to a much better place. Paul, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes and um, wish you the best of luck getting more people out of the rat race and to borrow another Kiyosaki term. There you go. Everyone out there listening, stay tuned to Actions Antidotes for more conversations about people who pursue their passions and oftentimes, just like Paul, have some insights for what you can do to get to a better place in your life. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.